Our scripture reading for this evening is Mark 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. Well, good evening. It is good to be with you. My name is Matt Jaderson. I'm the director of students here at Eastminster, and it is such a privilege uh, to be able to share with you tonight. We're in the book of Mark. Now, we're going to be in the book of Mark for the foreseeable future. We're, we're preaching along the same text that pastors stand and other pastors will be preaching on Sunday. And uh, before we dive in, I want to share a little. My, my son, my oldest son, Pierce, just turned four a couple weeks ago. And one of my favorite parts about being a dad is being able to watch him sort of understand or sort of gather some sort of idea about who God is. You know, we read him uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, we read him books at night about God, and we're sort of trying to teach him who Jesus is and who God is. And really the only adjective that my son gets about God is that he's strong and that he's big. And my son associates um, being big as also being tall. Like he always says to me, he says, Daddy, Daddy, someday I'm going to be taller than you. And I'm like, yeah, probably, you'll probably be taller than me. And then he looks at me and he goes, you know, Jesus is taller than you, <laughs> right? I get it. Like he's, he's thinking, okay, God is big. God is probably bigger than me. Like I get what he's trying to say, but it, it's fun to hear him try to understand who God is. You know, Jesus in the New Testament he says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is faith like a child that Jesus calls us to. And the reality is, is that we live in a culture that wants to connect with Jesus on their own terms. We live in a culture that, that says, uh, essentially, that Jesus becomes a projection of our own personality, or, or God becomes a projection of who we are and what we want and what we desire, and God is made in our image. It's not real. And what's amazing about the book of Mark and about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Gospels is that we are given real access to the true Jesus. You see, a God that is false, a God that we create in our own image, a God that only exists to meet our needs is not a God that can really change us. It's not a God that can, that can transform us. But we have real access to the person of Jesus. And so I want to leave you with a couple of the questions that I thought of as I'm thinking through the text this evening. First is this, since grace leads us into our life with God, do we continue to rely solely on God for the growth of our Christian character? Or is it something that we also participate in? Another way to put it may be this, if we were chosen by God, do we play a role in growing our Christian faith? And the New Testament demonstrates what I believe is the doctrine of both. 
right? It's both and. And in one moment, we see things like we can't even say that Jesus is our Lord without God helping us. And then in the next, we see commands like strengthen your weak arms and feeble knees and continue the faith ahead, right? These are, in one sense, a deliberate and intentional command for us to do, and in another, understanding that none of this is possible without God in us, without the Spirit's power working in us. It's what D.A. Carson calls a grace-driven effort. It's not a passive faith. We don't just simply lay back and let God do his thing. We participate in the work of God here and now, and we participate in that process through the power of the Spirit. And we need to understand this, and this is the big idea this evening, is that it's not about us getting better. As much as it is what the New Testament says over and over again, it's about being transformed. It's about going from being dead to being alive, being enemy, once enemies of God to being friends of God. It's not about subtle changes in our life, tidying up or tuning up our life, but it's about utter transformation. In fact, the word that Paul uses in the Greek in, in Romans 12 when he talks about the renewing of the mind, being transformed, is the word metamorphosis, which if you know, it's like a caterpillar when it goes into a cocoon, it completely transforms into a beautiful butterfly. Now, my question again this evening is, does our version, our vision of the Christian life line up with God's vision of the Christian life? So let's look at the text. Mark 1, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. A couple of vital things here. Um, first, the word time that Jesus uses here, the original language, there were different words for time. The Greeks would often use a word called chronos or chronos, which was a word that meant a, a, a period of time going by. So it could be days, months, years, etc. It's, it's how we tell time. But there's another word, and that word is kairos time. And, and what's being described here is kairos time, the time being fulfilled, or the time has come in the NIV. It's a pregnant moment of time. A way to explain it might be like this. If you're on a farm, you work really, really hard for a period of time until eventually there comes a time called the harvest. And during the harvest, it is a pivotal moment in which you have to work during that period of time in order to reap the most out of your labor. Another example of this I thought of was uh, last Monday night when the, uh, when the saints were down by one point with 22 seconds left on the clock, right? Drew Brees, this is, this is, he had worked years and years to have the kind of incredible athletic ability to make two perfect passes in 22 seconds to get them in field goal range. It was unbelievable, right? But he had been training his whole life. They had been practicing for that very specific moment. That was a Kairos moment, right? It was a moment in time where it was an urgency, and it was happening. Jesus is saying this, we've been waiting a long time for God to do something decisive in human history, right? The Israelites traveled back and forth, and times they were enslaved, and they experienced some horrible things. And now we get to this point where this Jewish man, Jesus, says the time is here. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. And so that time is now. Whether you want to run with God or deny him, the moment we've all been waiting for is here. So Jesus, 
He's preaching his very first sermon here. It's, it's a pretty short sermon, but those are the best ones, right? I'll try to be quick. He's saying that if you want to, do you want to join me because the kingdom of God is arriving? And if you're going to do that, there's a couple things we need to do. Repent and believe. And I think we need to take a moment to unpack these because we throw the words repent a lot. We throw that around. We throw the word believe a lot. And I don't think they necessarily mean what we often think they mean. Repentance in the New Testament simply means to change your mind. Think about a time when somebody's told you some new information and that new information completely changed the way you saw that thing. Right? Uh, the only example I could think of, I'm sure there's better examples, but I love basketball. My, my dad's a basketball coach, so I grew up watching basketball my whole life. I used to watch the Chicago Bulls. I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. That was my childhood. And back in the 90s, um, in the 80s, when in the basketball games, there's something called a three-point line, which is worth more points than a normal shot. Now there's a three-pointer and two-pointer. And back in the day, it was thought that the three-pointer was not a very efficient shot, right? Because it's farther from the basket, and it's more likely you're going to miss the shot. But within the last 10 years, there's been a bit of a revolution in the sport. You see, what statisticians realized was the value of the three-pointer being three points far outweighed how much more difficult a three-pointer was than a two-pointer. And so the game of basketball has completely been changed. Back then in the 90s and 80s, they shot maybe five to 10 threes a game. Teams are now shooting in the 30s for how many they're shooting a game. And this is universal around the league. So you have a new piece of information, right? Here's what the stats are showing us. And it's completely changed the way in which they think about the league. Here we have a new piece of information, right? The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom has arrived. This is a new piece of data. The times have changed. The times is now. Let's focus on what matters most. Repent and believe. And what I've discovered in my life is that repentance is a bit like a great unlearning. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, that repentance means unlearning all the self-conceit, the self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. See, sometimes I think repentance is not about necessarily learning new things, but unlearning old things that get in the way of following Jesus. Jesus invites us to follow him on this journey. And along the way, we had to learn that our inclination to be impatient and instead be patient with one another. Along the way, we had to unlearn our tendency to harbor unforgiveness, to harbor resentment, and instead learn to forgive others. Along the way, we had to unlearn that it was wrong to lie, cheat, cut corners, as long as you don't get caught. And along the way, some of us took those chances and we got by. But Jesus is saying, the time has come. The true king is here now. And it's time to unlearn things that keep us from seeing the kingdom way of life. And perhaps the issue for some of us is not learning something new, but instead unlearning something we know is not true, and to relearn the things that we know have always been true. Jesus says, repent and believe. And when Jesus talks about belief, it's not like the way sometimes we think about belief. We think of belief as a cognitive thing. I believe this to be true. But the reality is we live in a culture where you can say things without facts or reason. Right? I can get on Facebook and write, I believe that the earth is flat, and that if you get to the end, you'll meet a giant ice wall. Right? I've seen that. That's a real thing. People believe. 
Now, I can say that without any facts to back it up. And there's a kind of a phrase that's being thrown around in our culture amongst young people that, well, it may not be your truth, but it's my truth. I believe this because it's what I believe, and that's what makes it true. For some of us, belief is something that is not actually realized in how we live. There's a story about a pastor, and this pastor was home on the weekend, and a man came running up to his house and knocked on his door, pounded on his door. The pastor comes to the door, opens the door, and the man says, Pastor, I heard you were a pastor. Um, There's this woman and I really need your help. So she's a single mom. She has two young daughters. And the, the landlord is about to evict this woman and her family out of, the, out of their apartment if they don't pay rent. And rent is due tomorrow. And so the pastor stops for a second. says, okay, hold on. Back up a second. How much is the rent? I, I am a pastor. We do have a, a benevolence fund. Maybe we can help this person out. And the man says, oh, it's, it's only $600. And if, and if we can get it by tomorrow, they'll be able to stay in their apartment. And the pastor sees the, this man, he's kind of disheveled and sweating, and there's, there's clearly some compassion on his face. He says, okay, you know, I, I think we can do this. We can accomplish this. And the man says, thank you so much, turns to walk away. And the pastor says, wait a second, who is this landlord? And the man says, oh, I'm the landlord. Right? Sometimes there are things that we say we believe, and yet the way we live our life does not exactly end up being quite what we say we believe. It's like the person who complains about mega corporations while they're sipping their Starbucks. Right? It's, it's, the, it's the person who is despairing about climate change while they're driving their gas-guzzling SUV. It's this idea that sometimes we believe things to be true. We say we believe them, but they don't actually resemble the way we live. But you see, in the New Testament, the word belief was actually maybe better understood to mean something like a response. Belief was maybe a better word that helps us to understand it is trust. And so when we read these scriptures, you can think maybe we can insert the word trust and it will help us get a better understanding of what that word actually means. It's something has already happened, right? I've received information, something has happened, and I'm going to trust in and through Jesus Christ that Jesus is up to something in the world. And I'll say this too, and I'm going to come back to this, but I think there are many times in the New Testament we are called to believe in Jesus, meaning believe in the resurrection, believe that he is good, believe that he is a son of God. But there are also times that we are called to believe with Jesus. You see, Jesus has a vision for the future that is not yet realized. It's in the process of being put back together. It's going to have a different economy, a different set of values. This is what we talk about when we're talking about the kingdom of God. There is both a future and a current. It's the now but not yet. Living in that tension that God is in the process of redeeming the world now. And one day we'll see that in full in the new heaven and the new earth. In Genesis 3, um, back when man fell and, and disobeyed God and ate from the fruit, Sin entered the world, and ultimately we chose to be our own king. Right? We've chosen self-centeredness. We, ultimately, when we, when we choose to be our own center, when we decide that we are king of our life, that everything really begins to fall apart, physically, socially, spiritually, psychologically. 
And there is this longing, I believe, that's embedded in many cultures and through stories that all kind of have this similar theme, right? There's a, story, there's a theme of a king. A true king will come back. A true king will rescue a person from a tower. A true king will come to save the people. Here's what I believe. I believe that a true king will come back to put everything right and renew the world. And the good news of the kingdom of God is this, is that Jesus is that true king. And many of us treat Christianity like it is good advice and not good news. But the truth is the gospel, the joy of the good news is that it's not about choosing to follow some advice, but it's about being called to follow a king. And Tim Keller's book, and if you're going to be following us with the book of Mark, he wrote this great book called The King's Cross, and it's something I've been using as I've been studying for these, these sermons. And he wrote this, and it was so good I had to steal it. He said, uh, Jesus is saying that essentially we say, I'll follow you if, and then whatever is on the other side of that if is our true master. I'll follow you if it means I don't have to leave my comfort. I'll follow you if, if it means I don't have to get rid of my possessions. I'll follow you if, if it means I can keep this vice or this sin in my life. I'll follow you if, if it means I don't have to relieve any of my power. But Jesus, and we'll see this time and time again, Jesus will not be a means to an end. He says, don't come to me because I'm relevant. Don't come to me because I'll make you happy, whole, and healthy. Don't come to me because I'll make you better. Now, the reality is that Jesus is relevant. He can bring fulfillment. He can make us better. But he is not a means to an end. He's saying, come to me, not because of what you'll get out of it. Come to me because I am the true king. I am the true end. It's this amazing quote in Lord of the Rings. Um, I love it. It says, the hands of the king are healing hands. And thus shall the rightful king be known. See, the good news of the kingdom is this. The good news of the kingdom of God is that the material world that God created is going to be renewed so that it lasts forever. And we have a choice. We have a choice. We can trust in the way in the world as as we've received it now, or we can believe with Jesus for a world it is going to become when God's work finishes. You see, this is not a, I am going to check off something off a list and then I'm good. This is, oh no, I'm participating in the work that God is doing now, the redemptive work that God is doing here and now. I would suggest to you that living the Christian life is a bit like a beautiful song. I'm going to ask Terry to come up real quick. I've asked him to illustrate this point. Terry, if you would, would you play some notes for us? That was beautiful. Amazing. Now, if Terry plays a random note here and there, you know Terry, you heard him earlier, he's amazing, right? But if he plays a note here and there, a sustained pedal there or whatever, right, oftentimes I think that's a little bit how we sort of view the Christian life. I will do something good. I'll put the check off my list. Today, I didn't do this certain thing, so therefore I can check that off the list. I'll try to be a little better tomorrow. 
this day I went and I helped this person who was poor and now I feel a little bit better about myself. And it's sort of this random hodgepodge of things that we sort of try to say, okay, I'm doing the Christian life. But I believe that the deeper we walk with God, that the, the longer we walk with Jesus, the longer we accept his invitation, we repent and believe and we follow him, the songs, the notes, they don't become random and we begin to hear a tune and music that we recognize. Terry, would you play us another song? beautiful. If the Christian life is a song, my question to you is, are you playing it with your life, your time, your resources, or is it just random notes at random times that don't really resemble anything but a bunch of random sounds? Or are we allowing God to use our life like a great symphony? The second part of the passage Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, oh, we'll read from this one. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. I'm going to finish it. I think there's a little more. Is it there now? Okay. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now this is a familiar text, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but there's a question begged here that I think we have to ask, and why were, these, why were these guys so eager to just drop their nets and follow Jesus? Right? You'd think that maybe they'd be like, no, no thanks, you're, look, you're kind of weird, I don't really want to do that. Or maybe they'd say, I'd have to think about it, you know, maybe I'll talk to my parents or something at least, right? Or maybe they'll say, I'll pray about it, which is the Christian way of saying no. <laughs> but there was, there was something unique to this invitation, is it just because he was the son of God and he had this, magic, this sort of power? Or was there something else to it? You know, here's what we have to understand. These are the same fishermen who likely, in their, when they grew up, when they were four years old, they were put into a school system. And in this system, there would be a rabbi. And this rabbi would be having them memorize the books of Moses, right? which is a lot of text. All right? These are, these are five very large books. And this would happen probably, and I'm guessing here, but maybe from the ages of four to seven, and then at the end of that process, the rabbi would look amongst the boys. At that time, it was only boys. We hadn't quite evolved to understand that women should be educated as well. But at this time, it would be a bunch of boys, and the, the people would point around and say, okay, 
the rabbi would say, you're, you're good, you, you can pass on to the next class. You, go home, you're not good enough. You, you, you did it, you memorized most of the books, you can come with me, follow me. You, nope, didn't make the cut. And then those who made the cut would go to the next school. And in that school, they would begin to study the rest of the Old Testament. They would memorize these, these incredible books, and they would learn them. And then they would even study commentaries that the rabbis essentially had on these books. Right? They would comment on certain things, and they would learn. And by the end of this process, they would have just this extensive hyper-religious awareness. But there would also be the same process of, you're good, you follow me. You, not so much. Go home. There's a moment where these boys, a lot of them would essentially hear, you don't measure up. You aren't good enough. And as you can imagine, that that might leave a wound. And so you have these fishermen, right? These, These fishermen who likely did not pass, right? They were probably sent home. They weren't good enough. And they were told maybe multiple times that they didn't measure up. And this new rabbi comes along and he says, come, follow me. I accept you. These are words of affirmation, not condemnation. The time is now. The time has come. And I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I bet you Jesus was a pretty charismatic teacher. The time is now. Come follow me. And I believe that that might be one of the reasons why they dropped their nets immediately. I believe because it was a compelling an irresistible invitation. And I wonder, do we feel like the invitation that Jesus is offering to us is both compelling and irresistible? Jesus was giving them an invitation to become fishers of men. And this word is important, right? In the ESV, it says, become fishers of men, because the following Jesus is developmental, right? It's an invitation to go on a journey. This isn't, these kids were uneducated. They, they probably were not very um, They had a lot to learn. They probably made a lot of mistakes along the way. But Jesus is inviting them on this journey to become fishers of men. It's a process. And these kids said yes, even though they were far from perfect. I met with Pastor Stan last Thursday. Uh, We meet the Thursday before to kind of talk about the text. And what are some things that we're learning? What are some things that we're, we're talking about? And he asked me this question that kind of shook me. Because I was, t- I was coming into that meeting feeling pretty good about myself. I had done the work, and I was telling him all of my ideas. And then he said, Matt, I have a question for you. And he says, how does this invitation to give up everything and follow Jesus not feel like a burden? And he followed it up with, and I'm not getting it exactly right, but he followed up with, and how do we give this invitation today? What does that even look like? And I kind of struggled to give him an answer right away, and I, I thought about it more and more. And I think the reason I was wrestling with it so much is because I think we often get stuck in the trappings of what toxic religion can do. Religion can dilute the gospel by allowing legalism and shame to be the driver. And so, by invitation, I want to invite you, and I suspect that maybe there are some of you who felt that, who maybe haven't felt the gospel as being good news. But maybe it feels like a weight, a burden of something I have to do, of something I have to, to, to hold, and it feels tiresome. There's a verse, um, it's one of my life verses, it's, it's the words of Jesus, and it's an invitation. And if that's you tonight, if you feel that weight of shame, if you feel the weight of feeling like, man, this just feels like a burden, I just don't feel like I can do it. 
If you're feeling that tonight, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. This is the, um, the message translation of um, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28, verses, uh, 28 through 30. Hear the words of Jesus. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Learn to live freely and lightly. Now let me ask you, does that feel burdensome? I don't know about you, but when I read that, it feels like a burden is being lifted. Come and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn to live lightly and freely. You know, in the, in the, in, in the, uh, the Greek, there's this word he says, that he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's this idea of a yoke. It's a, it's a big wooden thing they would put on cattle or ox to, to move things. And it's this like heavy thing that you wear. And he's saying, look, remove the burden. My yoke is easy and the burden is light. Walk with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Now I'm going to close by telling us how we do this because I want, to, I want to give us a practical way in which we do this. I believe that we do this through a community of believers. That's what we are. We're a community. You know, the Christian faith oftentimes, I think in our culture, is often a very individual faith. It's about our personal time, our personal salvation, our personal prayer. And while those things are certainly important, it's incomplete because the Christian faith was meant to be lived in community. We do this as a community of believers through a grace-driven effort. We confess our sins together. We're going to do that here in just a moment. We receive forgiveness together. We encounter the presence of Jesus weekly through communion. And we're going to do that in just a bit. And I would encourage you, as you're taking the Lord's Supper, perhaps we would take a moment to think about the things that we need to unlearn. Perhaps some of us are carrying shame, carrying the weight and burden of legalism or or a weight of feeling like we don't measure up. Maybe we need to unlearn some of these things so that we can learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And we join in participating in the work of Christ, the one true King, and in doing so, we begin to hear a beautiful symphony of the Christian walk. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and your mercies endure forever. I pray that we would press into your love and forgiveness. May we learn to live lightly and freely, and in doing so, cultivate a Christian faith that is both compelling and irresistible, that we might too become fishers of men and women. Lord, help us for those in this room who feel the weight of legalism, who feel the weight of religion, Lord, I pray that they would have an encounter with you. May your grace wash over them. It's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.